Hey, take that Bible this morning and open it to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 as we turn back after Easter weekend, Good Friday, the Easter service last week and come back to the Word of God. We uh, had already a wonderful time today in baptism class. So encouraged by what the Lord is doing there in the life of our, our people. But John chapter 5 And we come this morning to the healing at the pool on the Sabbath. And so that is what I have titled the message, The Healing at the Pool on the Sabbath. And this healing that takes place uh, at that Sabbath day is the third sign of seven that John displays for us in this gospel to reveal the identity of Jesus Christ. The miracles serve in the Gospels and here in John to identify Christ, that you might believe that He is the Son of God. Now, I mentioned that it's the third sign. You remember the first one was when Jesus turned, look back there just for a moment in chapter 2, when Jesus turned water into wine. In fact, John, the writer, says in 2.11, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. So he turned water into wine. The second sign was what we saw just a couple weeks ago in John chapter 4, where he healed, do you remember, the official's son from a distance. In 449, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus in 450 said to him, Go, your son will live. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was on his way, it was revealed to him by his servants that his son was healed the very same moment that Jesus said, Go, your son will live. And then if you look at 454... It says this is now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And so I bring you now this morning to the third sign, and it's the healing of the man at the pool on the Sabbath. And we'll look at verse uh, 1 down through 15. Now, the miracles that are recorded in John's gospel fix their attention on Christ's divine power. He is all-powerful and He is all-good. He shows that power in turning water into wine. And if you've ever seen an analysis of how they make wine to recognize that He did it on the spot and those jars there, as they were poured in, it instantly became wine, the finest wine that they had tasted. That is His power at work to change the chemical compounds in that moment of time. And then he healed the official's son from a distance. He changed the chemicals in that boy's body from a distance, whether it was 18 to 20 miles or it's 2 million miles, it reveals the power of Christ. He will now heal this man on the Sabbath who has been an invalid for 38 years by his spoken word. That's his power. And then later on, we're going to see that he takes a man in John chapter 9 who was born blind and he gives him sights. 
Only God can do that. Only the Messiah could do that. And then, of course, in John chapter 11, Lazarus had been in the grave for four days. And in the King James, he stinketh by then, is what it says. And Jesus, by the power of his voice, raised Lazarus from the grave and from the dead. It's the power of Christ. And the power of Christ illuminates, if you will, and reveals his identity. Jesus, namely, is God in the flesh. He is the Son of God. Now, as we come to chapter 5, a shift occurs in John's gospel. And I would call it a major shift in John's gospel. There's kind of a a clear line here that is going to be marked as we come to the text. Jesus goes, generally speaking, from being welcomed, although I would say that somewhat superficially welcomed, to an all-out opposition to his person from John 5 and actually throughout the rest of the gospel. The fickleness of the crowd switches from reception to all-out rejection. And the account of the healing at the pool in Bethsaida reveals the beginning of that hostility. And this hostility will lead us all the way to the cross. You know, it's interesting when you're studying the Gospel of John, two-thirds of John, of the book itself, is given to the last six months of the life of Christ. Now, as we step into this account, it really is a very, very remarkable account of the healing of this man. You're going to look at characters. You're going to see plots unfold. You're going to see intrigue. You're going to see anger. You're going to see false religion. And it's all wrapped up in this healing. Now, of course, our question this morning, as it is each week, is what is the point of the the narrative? What is the point of why John included this in his gospel? This account is going to center itself around three characters, okay? We're going to look at the character of Jesus in one of the pictures that is given, the character of the Jews that will be demonstrated, and then most interesting, the character of the man that was healed. And so we're going to move through this account looking at each of those characters. And I believe John provides us with a very, very surprising ending. And rather than telling you about the ending up front, let's let the narrative unfold that. So here's where we're going this morning. I want to look at the incredible mercy of Christ in 1 through 9a. Then secondly, the incredible malice of the Jews in 9b through 12. And then thirdly, the incredible misstep, I call it, of the man in 13 through 15. So we'll look at the mercy of Christ, the malice of the Jews, and the misstep of the man. And of course, the question for you this morning as you are here in the hearing of the word of God is how will you respond? And what is your response to the power and to the mercy of Christ? There's the the reality of preaching God's word that as John wrote this, it comes off to us from ink on the printed page that you're holding in your lap or on your phone, but there's a response that is articulated as powerful as if the miracle happened just today in our midst. 
So let's dive into the text. I won't read it. I'm going to let it unfold for you as we go. But let's look first at the incredible mercy of Christ. And I'm going to keep us moving. So follow quickly with me as we go. It says in verse 1, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now you'll note there, it says just a little background. He says, after this. Now I don't think if you look into the language there that the after this means that it immediately followed. It could be that in that phrasing, it just, uh, there was a time gap in there. And he's talking about after this, after the healing of the official son. There's another Greek phrase that would put it in an immediate fashion that's not used here. And so we don't think it's, Exactly after, but it was after this, after the official son, sometime later. Look at the text again. It says that there was a feast of the Jews. These were very important to the nation of Israel. Very important if you were Jewish. They had different feasts. There was Passover. That was a feast. You see that we've already seen in chapter 2. There was another Passover. We'll see next chapter in chapter 6. There's another Passover that Jesus and then his disciples will be with him at in chapter 11. In chapter 7, there's another feast called the Feast of the Tabernacle, and then Tabernacles. And then in chapter 10, there's what is called the Feast of Dedication. You say, well, which one is it, Pastor? Well, we don't know. We don't know because all it says here is look at it again. After this, there was a Feast of the Jews. Somewhat intriguing that John just doesn't identify what feast this actually was. And I don't think that's the important point anyways, because look what it says in verse 1. It says, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In other words, he's in Galilee, and then he goes up to Jerusalem. So he goes south, but John says that he went up, because if you've been to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is up. You have to hike up to get it. And when we were there a year and a half ago, it snowed in January. The elevation is a little bit high. And so there's a feast in Jerusalem, and he goes to this particular feast. Look at verse 2. It says, Now there was in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. There you have it. There was at the temple, if you can put yourself back in Jerusalem, at this temple there was a very small opening at the north wall of the temple. And at that north wall there was a what they called a sheep gate. And some people believe that that sheep gate was where the gate where the sheep were washed, if you will, uh, at this pool before being taken to the temple for sacrifice. So picture the temple, if you will, on that mount. And on this north gate, there's a, there's a sheep gate. And then look at verse 2. It says, by the sheep gate, there was a pool. And here again, it just says in Aramaic, it's called Bethsaida. And that just means literally house of mercy. House of mercy. In fact, there is a sheep gate referred to in the book of Nehemiah that many scholars believe is the same gate. That's Nehemiah chapter 3 and Nehemiah chapter 12. It refers to this gate. Just a little fact here. What's been fascinating is they never knew where this gate was. It's in the scripture Nehemiah 3. It's in the scripture Nehemiah 12. Obviously, it's here. It was by this 
uh, sheep gate that there was a pool. Well, just like all things related in the Bible, in 1988, excuse me, in 1888, there was an excavation that took place. And in that excavation, sure enough, by that sheep gate, they found a pool. And at that discovery, there was five colonnades, if you will, or sometimes what they call porticos that were found at that discovery. What's also interesting in that discovery in 1888, there was a painted fresco on the wall of an angel stirring the water. And so what they uncovered is exactly what the Bible says. There would have been a colonnade, it's called in the ESV. If you can just picture a pool and a colonnade, a colonnade would have been just a porch. And and these porches came out on each side of the pool, okay? And then there was a fifth colonnade separating the two pools. And so the colonnade covered the invalids, if you will, that you'll see in a moment, Um, from the sun. Now, by the way, this is not a family pool. These pools that were uncovered were quite large. So picture, and there's two of them actually. There were two large pools. They had these porticos or these colonnades, which was shade to cover the people. In fact, look at verse 3. It says there, in these, that would be in those colonnades, lay... Look at the words, a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And so they would just bring these people who were invalid, blind, lame, and paralyzed, and they would put them at the pool. Now, if you're holding an ESV, look down in your Bible, because mine doesn't contain it. Do you notice this? It goes from chapter 5, verse 3, to verse what? 5. Verse 4 is missing. Now, if you're holding an old King James, the old King James is going to put verse 4 in there. And what you have here is the earliest manuscripts, okay, do not contain verse 4. In other words, we have a rich manifest uh, manuscript tradition. We have over four to uh, nearly 5,000. Greek manuscripts. And what happened here is the later manuscripts um, included this. But as these manuscripts were being, uh, you know, found in, in, in biblical history, there were earlier manuscripts, and the earliest manuscripts did not have verse 4 in them, okay? And so they believed that a scribe would have added that later. Now, here's what verse Four said, okay? You might not even have it. It might be a footnote in your margin. But if you read verse 3, it would say, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And then here's what it says in these late manuscripts. Waiting for the moving of the water. It's the end of verse 3. And then verse 4 said, And an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease that he had. End of quote. That is in late manuscript tradition. 
but not the earliest. The earliest are the more reliable. And then they, so they believe a scribe added this. You say, well, why did a scribe add that phrase? Look down in chapter 5 and verse 7. When Jesus said, do you want to be healed at the end of sick, this sick man answered and said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And so there was a tradition. They would bring these invalids, if you will, to the pool. They would gather them. And from the text, there was quite a number of them. And they would gather waiting for this angel of the Lord to stir the water. And whoever can get in the pool first would would be healed. It's also interesting that these pools, they say in history, were were placed in such a way that some of the springs would feed into these pools. And then some people believe that there was a, a that these springs contained minerals and it brought with it healing power. And so you get the picture here. They were laying the invalid, the paralyzed, the lame, and the blind at this pool. Now you say, well, what do you think about verse 4 that's not in the text? An angel stirred the waters. I think it's pure superstition, okay? Nowhere in the Bible do we find that. In fact, to be honest with you, I think it's kind of cruel, don't you? Here is the angel of the Lord supposedly stirring the water, and the first one who would get into the water would be healed. You have to understand, this is ancient times, beloved. They believed a lot of weird things, not just the Jewish people, but the people in general. I read this week about a man who cited a papyrus Ebers. And papyrus Ebers was an Egyptian, he wrote in an Egyptian medical book. And here's some of the things that he used to say, okay? Quote, to prevent hair from turning gray, anoint it with the blood of a black calf boiled in oil, or with the fat of a rattlesnake, okay? He said, when hair falls out, apply a mixture of six fats, those of a horse, a hippo, a crocodile, a cat, a snake, and an ibex. And to strengthen it, anoint it with the tooth of a donkey crushed in honey. I mean, just crazy stuff. I mean, that's the world in which they lived. And they believed in magic water. They believed in lizard's blood, swine's teeth, putrid meat, stinking fat, moisture from pig's ears, goose grease, animal fat, all of those were supposed remedies. And so some people believe that if you can take somebody in your family to this pool, the tradition said an angel would stir the water and the first one in would get healed. But look at the text, though, in verse 5 now. One man, John says, was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. His exact disease is not specified, but it says invalid, and it says paralyzed and lame in the text. And uh, picture this, he's there for 38 years. That is a long time. That is a debilitating disease, if you will. For four decades, this particular man was laid at that pool. Look at verse 6. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. Stop there just for a second. He saw him there. I think he saw him with an eye of mercy. Jesus, of course, has revealed his 
supernatural knowledge in this gospel. And when he saw him there, it just says in verse 6 that he had knew, he knew that he had been there a very long time. And again, I believe this is supernatural knowledge. Just as in chapter 1 when he saw Nathaniel under the tree and he called him by name. Just as we saw in John chapter 2 when he didn't need to tell, have him tell anybody about people's hearts for he knew what was in the heart of man. When he said to the woman at the well in chapter 4, you have rightly said, you do not have a husband, for you have five husbands, and the man you're with is not your husband. And so as he walks into these pools, verse 6, he sees this man, he knows that he had been there a very long time. And Jesus initiates contact with him. Look again at verse 6. Somewhat bizarre. He says, do you want to be healed. Interesting. You might ask, well, what kind of question is that? The guy's been there for 38 years and Jesus asked him, do you want to be healed? I I suppose it's a better question than saying, how was your day going? Right? But he saw him with an eye of mercy, if you will. And he asked him that question. Then look what the sick man said. Verse seven. He said, the sick man answered him, sir, which is interesting, I have sir in the ESV, it's the Greek word kurios, which means Lord, but sir is the right way, they just, it's better to, it wasn't as though he's calling him Lord as you and I would understand that word, but he says, look again, he said, sir, he says, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. Here's the picture that John's giving. This man is hopeless. I mean, it's a picture of our fallen world. He is helpless. And beyond just being hopeless and helpless, this guy's friendless. He doesn't have anybody to put him in the water. I mean, in this sense, if you can just picture walking into this pool area, it is every man for himself, and it is impossible for him to get to the pool. And so the incredible mercy of Jesus goes to work. You say, what did Jesus say? Look down in verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now, again, just stop there for a second. He commands the man to do what he is unable to do. He can't walk. And so he commands him to walk. And Jesus just did this with a spoken word. The one who was the word in John chapter 1. The one who spoke the world into existence. That nothing's come into being that has come into being apart from him. The one who in the book of Colossians said, let there be light. And there was light. And just as he did at creation, he spoke this miracle into existence. In other words, He's so powerful that his word accomplished his will. You say, well, how do you know that? Look at the next verse in verse 9. And, the, and at once, I like that phrase, at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and he walked. Beloved, here is the power of God at work in Christ. I mean, obviously it's a miracle. But listen, this guy was toast for 38 years of his life. 
he picked up his bed, which is like to say in the language, he picked up a little mat that he had and he got up and he walked 38 years. Your muscles wouldn't work. 38 years of atrophy on those muscles. And with one word, with one command, Jesus said, pick up your pallet, pick up your mat, your bed, and walk. And his muscles that were atrophied restored to health instantly. You say, well, what is this? Well, point one, it's the incredible mercy of Christ. It is the incredible power of God at work in that mercy. Jesus, beloved, is God. Jesus shows the same compassion and mercy as God. All of his works, all of his words, as one said, are merciful. He has mercy for the physical suffering, and that's why he heals people. He has compassion and mercy on demonic suffering, and that's why he delivers people. He has compassion for sin, for suffering, and that's why he saves people. God, by nature, is compassionate. God, by nature, is merciful. And here, so is Jesus. And so here is an illustration of the compassion of Jesus to a man that had received no mercy. Jesus shows him mercy. I mean, imagine that day. He just walks in. It doesn't say the disciples are here. He just walks in. And as he walks in, I mean, it must have been an interesting place if there was a great multitude of paralyzed and lame and the invalid lying there. And somehow in the sovereignty of God, he sees this one particular individual and he displays incredible mercy. Now, hang on with me on this point. It's not stated here, is it, just as we read that, that the man had faith. doesn't say that. It doesn't even say that his faith led to the miracle. As you walk through verse 1 through 9, the focus is here on the incredible mercy of Christ. And at this point, you're thinking another powerful miracle of Jesus Christ. And the account is over. But it's not over. It's far from over. We haven't even begun, John would tell us, because there's a little point in verse 9b that becomes a game changer. Look what it says. At once this man was healed, he took up his bed, and he walked. And now this little footnote. Now that day was the, what? Sabbath. Oops. And I don't know if I should say oops, because I think he dialed it up that way. I think it was purposeful. I I think he did this strategically. Because look at verse 10 now. So the Jews, this is unbelievable, said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Just a a couple of points there. I'm reading in verse 10. Back up just there at the beginning of 10, so the Jews said. You say, who's that? Uh, I don't have time this morning. Always it's of important time to us, preciousness. When you see that phrase, so the Jews, that's the Jewish leadership. There's many times throughout John's gospel when it says that in verse 10, so the Jews, when really what he's saying throughout John's gospel is the Jewish leadership, the Jewish authorities. 
the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so forth. So the Jews said to him, now if you look down in verse 10, it says in the ESV, it is the Sabbath. But in the language, the word for Sabbath is what we call emphatic. And so here's what it says. The Jews said to the man who had been healed, Sabbath. In other words, it is. Sabbath is is emphatic. In other words, as you read this in verse 10, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, Sabbath, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So I transition you from the incredible mercy of Christ to secondly, the incredible malice of the Jews. It's Sabbath. I mean, and that's just a deal breaker for them. Now, now just to walk this back, Sabbath went from sunset on what day? Friday to sunset on Saturday. It is, after all, let me say this to begin with, the fourth commandment. And on the Sabbath day, according to the word of God, you were to abstain from every form of labor because God rested on the seventh day. In fact, the Old Testament forbid work on the Sabbath. According to Exodus chapter 20, there's many statements that say that this Sabbath is a holy day You are to cease from your labor. But what happened, beloved, is the rabbis developed what we call an oral tradition. It wasn't the teaching of the scripture. It's what they called their tradition, their oral tradition. It's uh, enclosed in what they called the Mishnah. And they came up with 39 types of work that was forbidden, forbidden on the Sabbath. And the last of those 39 was carrying anything from one domain to another. So let me, let me say this. What was designed by God in Scripture was for worship and rest. But in the eyes of the Jewish leadership, it became, did the Sabbath, a legalistic straitjacket. And they made rules. They had 39 of them. They're recorded in the Mishnah. You say, well, what kind of rules were they? Well, I'm glad you asked, okay? Can I just tell you about a few, and I'm reading these, and I'm not making these up. If, here is one of them, a building fell down on the Sabbath, okay, picture this, and I'm quoting, enough rubble could be removed to discover if any victims were dead or alive. If alive, they could be rescued, but if dead, the corpses needed to be left until after what? Sunset. So, Bo, I see you down there. It'd be like something happened on a building and you're unpiling of, uh, rocks and you see one of your brothers there. That's a morbid illustration. And, and if he's alive, you pull him out. But if he's not, uh, we'll, we'll get him later, Dad. We'll... we'll uh, will come after some absurd, isn't it? One rabbi went so far as to forbid on the Sabbath the throwing of hot water over one's self. You might ask, well, why? For fear of spreading the vapor or of cleaning the floor thereby. Because if the vapor spread and it got on the floor and you wiped the floor, you're working. You could, this is important for you, spit on the Sabbath, 
but you had to be careful where you spit. If you spit in the dirt and then scuffed it with your sandal, you would be cultivating the soil and performing a work. You see, this is kind of the legalism that they begin to develop. In fact, it got so absurd that the Jews debated a man, no joke, with a wooden leg, namely if his home caught on fire, could he carry his wooden leg out of his house on the Sabbath? Chairs could not be moved because dragging them might make a furrow in the ground. I mean, you're not planting stone fruit at that point, but you couldn't drag a a chair because a furrow would work itself in the ground and you would be accused of working. A woman was, (laughs) I shouldn't laugh, it's sad, but a woman was not to look in a mirror lest when she looked in the mirror she found a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. And therefore she's working on the Sabbath. If you had false teeth, they could not be worn on the Sabbath because they exceeded the weight limit for the burden that you could carry in your mouth. So you understand, this was the rigid tradition. This is not from the Old Testament. And they taught, listen carefully, if anyone carried anything from a public place to a private place on the Sabbath intentionally, he deserved death by stoning. And so you understand now, they come to this guy, and the man who was, in heal, who was healed was in danger of losing his life. Sabbath is the thought. Look at verse 10 again. Be clear. It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful. Make sure you understand what's at stake for you to take up your what? Bed. You say, well, what happened? Well, that's what they said to him. You can't do this. You could lose your life. So look at verse 11. But he answered them, the man who healed me. That man said to me, take up your bed and walk. The man puts the focus on Jesus. And I don't look at it as too positive that he did. In other words, the Jews are hunting this guy down now. You say, for what? For being healed? No, not for being healed. But he carried his bed. He carried his mat. And this guy, in response to the Jewish leader, says, I'm just following orders. And so they said to him in verse 11, or they they, they ask him there, who is the man that said to you, look at verse 12, take up your bed and walk. Now, just step back with me. Do you understand what they never asked? I mean, forget the miraculous power of a guy who had been laid at a pool for 38 years. They want to know who said this to you. Who did this to you? Not like, hey, brother, we rejoice with you. We've seen you there for 38 years. And are you really the same guy? No, they didn't say that. They want to know who said this to you. They basically asked this man, who breached the code? Who breached this code? I mean, seriously, beloved, all he did was pick up his mat. And the issue here is not the healing, but that he was carrying his mat on the Sabbath and thus working. And so Jesus is not accused of violating the law. 
but causing another to sin by giving the command to break the law. In other words, he was in trouble because he carried his bed. Now, we're going to look at this more, but, you know, Jesus had problems on the Sabbath all the time. And he said in Mark chapter 2, he said, Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, mercy trumps man-made rules. In fact, he said in Mark chapter 2 that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, he's the ruler of the Sabbath. Beloved, he made the Sabbath. So here's the mercy of Jesus, the incredible mercy of Jesus. And then here, the incredible malice of the Jews. But it brings us to this and very important is the incredible misstep of the man. The misstep of the man. Follow the text. Look at verse 13. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. He did not know who it was. Now, you know, when you're teaching, you're wondering, is that a little bit of irony there? He doesn't know? Now, it could be that he just didn't know because it all happened so quick. Look at the text again. It said, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in this place. Okay. It could have been that he didn't know, but I I actually think there's a little bit more there. I mean, he doesn't know who Jesus is. He didn't find out who Jesus was. And then Jesus, the text does say, withdrew. And just to put this in perspective, he's at a festival, right? Don't think this is our church gathered. There are thousands of people here, thousands gathered. And if he wasn't with his disciples, his entourage, he could just perform the miracle. And while they crowd around this invalid for 38 years, he just slipped out of their midst because he has much to do. But this is fascinating. Look at verse 14. He he leaves. But afterward, verse 14, Jesus found him and he's seeking him, is he not? And he found him in the temple. And what he said to him is unbelievable. He said, see, you are well. And now this. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. A warning is given to this man, which is enough intriguing by itself. In fact, the only explicit character trait attributed to the healed healed man is couched in a prohibition and it's joined, if you will, to a warning. Now, you could ask yourself this, shouldn't the man's healing have been the evidence of the forgiveness of his sins? And hasn't he just stood up admirably well to the legal authorities? So what wrong or sin is the man presently guilty of, is the question. It must be a significant infraction, for Jesus takes the trouble to find him and warn him of a worse fate that he might fall into. Now he warns them. Look at the text again. He said, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, some sins carry 
consequences, don't they? I mean, all sin in some ways is a sin before God, but just reason with me. Some sins carry consequences to it. And in other words, you sin, you're going to reap the reward or the judgment, if you will, from that particular sin. But certainly, though, not all instances where suffering is involved are the direct result of sin, are they? Let me just take it. Look over, just turn right a few pages to John chapter 9. Some sin results in consequences, but not all sin that leads to suffering is a result of sin. And I think you know this well in John 9, 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered in verse 3, It was not this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So that man who was born blind had not sinned, nor was it his parents' sin. However, and you, you, you could reason with me, some tragedies, some, are the specific outcome of sin, are they not? If you opened your Bible to Acts chapter 5, you would find there the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, right? Ananias dropped dead on the spot and the deacons carried him out. And his wife, after she got done being somewhere, came in and dropped dead on the spot and the deacons carried her out. That sin had consequences. So some sin brings consequences. That's the teaching of Scripture. Not all sin, but some does. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when they came and were making light of the Lord's Supper? Paul was very clear to say in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 and 30 that some were sick and some had fallen, what? Asleep. They died because they were coming to the Lord's table in an in a irreverent way. David said, was it in Psalm 32, that his life juices physically had dried up because of his, what, sin. I mean, it's just wrong to say that sin has no consequences. It has serious consequences in the Scripture. David said, my very life fluids were drying up until I confessed my sin. Beloved, you remember in James chapter 5, when the man who was sick, and it says in James 5.15, that the prayer of, the, of faith will save the one who is sick. And a lot of people take that physically sick. I don't. Go listen to the tape. That is, the prayer of a righteous man will save the one who is sick spiritually. And then it says, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So some tragedies, the specific outcome of sin results in sin, but of course results in death. But not all tragedy is the result of sin. Who's the classic illustration in the Old Testament of that? Job. Job didn't sin. We don't even find that his kids sinned. So there, there was no reason. There was no, outside of the sovereignty of God, there was nothing that brought him that onto him. 
However, come to this account though. Jesus says to this man, fascinating, I want you to go in a different direction that marked your life. Stop sinning is, is what he says. Sin no more. In other words, 38 years is one thing, Jesus says, in essence, but that's nothing compared to eternal punishment in hell. In other words, he wants to go find this man and say, you must turn from your sin. Why? Look at the text. So that nothing worse may happen to you. In other words, the unavoidable implication, you'd have to agree with me, is that the bad thing that has already happened was occasioned by the sin which the person, the man, must not repeat. In other words, something worse, I believe, here is final judgment. In fact, why do you say that, Scott? Look just down at the chapter in chapter 5 and verse 29. When he says in 28, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of what? Judgments. In other words, you will be accountable for what you have done. And so he heals this man on the Sabbath. Look at verse 16 though. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. In fact, it's in the present tense. They were persecuting Jesus. They were hunting him down. And I think it's unmistakable that John wants you to understand this persecution became louder and louder until they would succeed in crucifying Jesus. Watershed issue here in John chapter 5. In fact, their response to Jesus as you go in 516, 518, 717, 725, 859, 1031, 1033. They were trying to kill him, okay? It marks this, this passage, the beginning of outright opposition to him. Now, you're still left with the guy. Jesus said, you found him. This is an amazing text. And he says, Sin no more that nothing worse may happen. You say, well, what, what did the guy do? Did he, he, did he respond? Yes, it's there in your text. Verse 15, it says that the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had helped him. Now, he reported him. Really? One commentator put it this way. What do you think? He said, with gratitude, quote, in his heart, he went back and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed them. I mean, his response is open to debate, and maybe that's why John left it this way. Was he, I'm asking you, you decide with me, noble Bereans, was he bearing witness of Jesus or was he absolving himself by implicating Jesus? Hey, it's that guy. Well, what's his name? I don't know his name. Then Jesus finds him in the temple. And he, and he said, see that you, and then, he, and then immediately right after that, he goes and reports Jesus. Here's what I know. There's no thanksgiving in this text at all, 
regarding the Lord's mercy. There's nothing there. There's nothing of his mercy, nothing of his power from this man. Frankly, it reminds me of Luke when the nine lepers never said what? Thank you, okay? The man, to me, appears indifferent towards Jesus. Listen, we don't have time, but this is such a contrast to the man born blind in John chapter 9. The man born blind who was healed defends Jesus. Then he, in John chapter 9, pays the price of being excommunicated from the temple. But this guy, I don't know, verse 11, he virtually, say it that way, blames the one who healed him. It was this guy. He just told me to pick up, and here I am. He never sought out our Lord's name in verse 13. Now, maybe the Lord slipped out of his midst, but he never sought out the Lord's name. But here's all I know. Would you agree with this? That once he is found, here's how I take it. He narks on Jesus. He rats him out. It's the only way I take it. He becomes an informant for the Jews. In fact, look over at John chapter 11. Here's why I think that's what he did. John chapter 11 and verse 45. After he had raised Lazarus from the dead, okay, it says this. Many of the Jews, therefore, 1145, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, okay? But, verse 46, some of them went to the, what? Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is interesting about this man. I call it the misstep. Of the man. You know, the miracles are to show his power. In fact, look back at John chapter 2 just for a moment. Now, let me show you what happens in some of the miracles that Jesus performed. You remember the water and the wine. We went through that. Verse 11 This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan, Galilee, and he manifested his, love that word, glory. And his disciples, what did they do? They believed in him. I love that little phrase. Look at John chapter 2 in verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, it says, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they, here's the response, believed in the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed in him. Look over at John chapter 3. You know this one well in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever Believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Look at John 3.36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Look at John chapter 4. There in verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that woman at the well, from the town, believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Look at verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. But, but here's, the, here's the kicker for me. This falls on the heels of chapter 4 of the official son. Look, what, look at it there in verse 50. When Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the man, what did he do? He believed. He believed the word that Jesus spoke. Look down in verse 53. 
The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said this to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. Listen, beloved. I think this is a tragic story. Four amazing decades of suffering, healing, a warning, the truth of forgiveness made clear to him, and he walked, I think. He walked from Jesus and declared his loyalty to the Jews who hated Jesus. He turned him in, is the thought. In the face of the mercy of Christ, in the face of the amazing miracles, the man declared his loyalty to the Jews who hated Jesus and who clearly wanted him dead. One said, this has to be the most startling act of ingratitude and unbelief in all the healings that Jesus ever did. He has no intention of worshiping the Lord. You say, well, what's the point? Well, just let me ask you, what about you? Do you have Christ? Do you embrace him as Lord and Savior? Or are you captive to a religion that your loyalty is led by false teachers telling you lies and making you a prisoner of deception? If that's the case, I, just, I warn you as Jesus warned, There's only one hope of salvation, and it's in him. And if you reject him, you are lost forever, and the punishment is forever outside of his presence. And this man, I believe, made his choice. He made a wrong choice. He made a tragic choice. And it's a kind of microcosm of Judas who encountered Jesus, who saw his power, heard his words, heard his warning, and he chose hell. So what what, what does that mean today? Listen, there's a lot of people in Reedley and in Visalia and in Kingsburg who have been around it and have been around his power, heard his power, read about his power, but they've never been touched by the power of the gospel. And, And the best I can see... This guy went out and I think narks on Jesus. You say, is there hope? Absolutely. There's hope. There's hope in the gospel. Do you remember in John 21, 35, many other things Jesus did? And remember John said, were every one of them written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that were written. But then he says later in 21, these things have been written so that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Here's what I'm saying to you. Have you believed? I'm not talking about your grandpa. I'm not talking about your grandma. I'm not talking about your mom and your dad. You could be in this worship service and go straight to hell. You just never have to believe in Christ. I'm not sure that this guy ever believed. But you have to get to the point, you yourself, where you place your trust and your hope in Christ And if you believe in him, John says, you will have life in his name. But you've got to believe. You've got to bow your knee. You yourself individually have got to place your trust in Christ. It's not alone, enough alone just to be around it. You have to come to a place of faith. You know, I just, for some reason, I was thinking of my own testimony 
when I wasn't in a service, I wasn't listening to a sermon, I didn't have a guy witness to me. All I know is God brought a scripture in my mind, James 2.10, and it dropped me right to my knees. And it made me realize that salvation is of the power of God. But listen, I say to you, I love you as your shepherd. You've got to get to the point where you believe because there's many people who are around Christ who follow him for the miracle and don't know the power and have never placed their faith in Christ. And I would plead with you, do so today and know the power of eternal life.